0: Hello, I'm Andrew Harrison, introducing another in our series of Bunker Gold editions from the Archive. From September 2020, just after the end of the first COVID lockdown, this is a powerful and a moving episode about how Britain treats its homeless population and why we need to talk less and listen more to people who need somewhere to live. Here's Dorian Linsky talking to Maeve McLanahan, author of No Fixed Abode, Life and Death Among Britain's Homeless. Hello, I'm Dorian Litsky. Welcome to another episode of the Bunker Daily. As the lockdown eased over the summer, we saw tents and sleeping bags return to Britain's streets. Before the pandemic, at least 4,600 people were sleeping rough in the country and around 200,000 lived in temporary accommodation. Those people don't just fear COVID-19. Every year, hundreds of homeless people slip through the supposed safety net and die in ways that could have been prevented. Until recently, those deaths were not even counted. My guest today is Maeve McLennahan, a celebrated journalist at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, who's been shortlisted for multiple Orwell Prizes and Amnesty International Awards, and also hosts the podcast The Tip-Off. Three years ago, she launched the Dying Homeless Project to record and remember those deaths. That project has led to a powerful new book, No Fixed Abode, Life and Death Among the UK's Forgotten Homeless. Hello, Maeve. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Dorian. Thanks so much for having me. So we saw during the lockdown, the state could act fast to get homeless people off the streets in an emergency. Now, obviously, unusual circumstances, but does that prove your claim towards the end of the book that what's lacking is not necessarily solutions, but political will?
1: Yeah, there was this fantastic moment, which almost overnight, we solved rough sleeping or seemed to. And, you know, for years we'd been told that there was no magic money tree, that this there just wasn't funding to address the issue. And then councils are given forty-eight hours to scramble and get people in off the streets. And there was this real recognition then that a safe roof over your head isn't a luxury. It is a basic human right to keep you alive. Which was fantastic. Sadly, you know, already there's questions about the sustainability of that funding and keeping people in. But also, I think it's important to recognise that that doesn't really address the issue. That's a a, a sticking plaster Mm -hmm. on a gaping wound, really, in that there's so many other things that are still pushing people into homelessness. And there's so many cuts to services that would help to keep those people that have been brought in, in. It's not enough to just stick someone in a hotel and say, that's it, job done, homelessness solved. It's much more complex than that.
0: Well, it struck me reading really the book that homelessness is a symptom of a number of other sort of failures: inadequate mental health care, council housing shortages, benefits actions, and the sort of myriad uh, effects of austerity. How do you solve it without solving all of those problems?
1: I think that's just it. I think we can't, and it takes that kind of holistic complicated approach to recognise that there's multiple different factors here. You know, if we think of a safety net that we assume will save people when they fall, that net is made up of various different strands of different support services. And those are interwoven, to extend a metaphor, (laughs) possibly too far. But, you know, mental health services interact and support drug and alcohol services and uh, housing services and all of these things Um, unnecessary and bolster each other up and when any of those are weakened there's a knock-on effect but what we've seen is after a decade of austerity cuts across services every single strand of that safety net has been weakened so it's daunting because to address that will take funding and will take political will and might take new ways of thinking to join some of those services up but the long-term savings are easily apparent. You know, you see that in other countries, you see that in areas where short-term funding has been brought in to address a crisis, and then you see long-term savings. So there, I think there is an economic argument to be made to spend now to save money in the long run.
0: Rough sleeping was vastly reduced under the last Labour government, rose again after 2010, and the sort of figures speak for themselves. Is, is that is that basically just austerity is the answer there quite quite simple is that you you know you cut services and this is what happens
1: yeah it's an element of well yes a large part of it cutting services this is what happened it's also the siloing of responsibility so under that labor government there was a kind of cross department and lead on, on homelessness that could join up all the, all the different sectors. And that's something I saw time and time again in researching the book, even when I started out on the investigation, was that all these services that exist now um, and all the departments that exist in government don't necessarily know that what, what the next one is doing. So when I was just trying to get to the answer of how many people are dying homeless... I went round and round the houses from coroner's office to hospitals, to police, to council, to central government, and everyone thought somebody else was collecting those figures. And that's, I think, similar in terms of services, in that everybody assumes somebody else is responsible for the issue. And then we've also seen with funding, the ring funding of certain pots, like supporting people, which is meant to support um, adults in need. Uh, That ring fencing has been taken away in recent years, which means councils that are just hugely stretched with their budgets find themselves kind of siphoning off bits of money that was intended maybe for one thing to patch up another area. So it's a big complex picture, but really it comes down to thinking of this holistically as a whole and making sure that the funding is there and the funding is secure and long term and sustainable and ring fenced to make sure that um, services are brought back and stay back.
0: And can you briefly explain, because people will not read the book yet, why you started the Dying Homeless Project and how that led to No Fixed Abode? Like, what was the the impetus for you as as a journalist?
1: Sure. So it was um, I kept seeing on my Twitter feed and in local newspapers individual stories, really tragic, horrifying stories of people who had died while on the streets or died homeless. One story in particular. A man called Tony, who died in his back in the back garden of the house that had been his for decades, that he had been evicted from, died in the middle of a snowstorm. And that image, just somebody dying meters from their own door, really struck with me. At the same time, I was I was living in London at the time, walking to work every day and seeing more and more people out on the streets, tents popping up at crossroads, you know, in the middle of town, uh, everywhere I looked. And so I thought, I thought I had what was a simple question, which was, if more people are experiencing homelessness, and we know that from the data that exists, are more people dying homeless? And like I say, when I started to ask around, nobody had that data, everyone assumed somebody else had it. And that really set me off on what felt like a, a moral mission, really, to, to get to the get to the nub of that, find out why that information isn't being held and see if I can uh, pull together the data myself. And so I worked with this amazing team of journalists all across the country, part of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's Bureau local team, which connects up different journalists. We set out on this mission and we came to the figure that there had been at least 800 people who had died while homeless in 18 months, all across the UK, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England... And we knew that that was a vast underestimate. And in doing that work, I had come across so many stories of people who were both living and people who had passed away that I knew I wanted to tell them in uh, in more depth in a way that uh, a news article wouldn't allow me to do. And so that's how I came to write, write No Fixed Abode, which talks in great detail about some of these people, who they were. Where were the moments that intervention could have helped them? Where were they failed by the safety net? How did they fall into homelessness? I think often it's seen as such an alien concept, something that could never happen to you or me. And then when you learn more about you know, how people have come to be there, certainly as me writing a book, it really helped me understand just how possible it is that somebody could fall on such hard times and, and end up in that situation. And then also in a book I try to explore some of the more positive elements, the people who are working tirelessly to keep people alive, um, the services that are out there that are working, and some ideas for how, you know, how we can make things better in the future.
0: Well you tell some of these life stories, but it's also quite a personal book about your own sort of investigative process, I suppose your learning process. Why did you, I mean, there is, there's another version of this book, I suppose, which should be much more which novelistic or documentarian. Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to make yourself and your own sort of discovery process part of the story?
1: Yeah, that was something I grappled with at the start. Um, initially, I was thinking to do this kind of fly on the wall, you know, I am not there. Um, we just tell the stories of, of people. But you know, people who are experiencing homelessness have written their own books and are writing their own books, and they tell fascinating insights into personal stories. So I didn't want to assume or or kind of project the idea that I could write their story better than they could. That's absolutely not what I was trying to do. Instead, I wanted to join up all of the dots of the policy issues and the funding issues behind this. And, you know, along with that was this idea that I, I make this podcast called The Tip-Off which is about journalists talking through their process Um, and I think there's an element of of hearing or reading someone grappling with an investigation that can help you as a reader or a listener kind of bring you along on the journey as well so kind of learning lessons as the protagonist journalist uh, learns them I guess and so I wanted to do that you know I came from a place of ignorance and assumptions around homelessness and through the book educated myself so I wanted to to kind of be transparent about that process as well I'm not the expert on homelessness I've not experienced homelessness but here's what I found out from spending years researching and talking to people and, and trying to get my head around it.
0: And which of your preconceptions were challenged by the reporting and sort of left you with a different understanding of homelessness?
1: So I had always had the idea that somebody that you see sitting, sleeping on the streets is completely disconnected from their former life, you know, has no friends and family to call on, is a kind of complete social pariah, I guess, a complete assumption and one that I found to be wrong. Um, Attending funerals of people who had died while rough sleeping, it became abundantly clear just how loved and cared for they were. In the case of one woman called Jane, who died at age 53 in a bank doorway in Stafford. I spent a a good deal of time talking to her mother, who had tried for decades and decades to, to support her daughter, to help bring her in, to keep an eye on her, and had struggled along with her. And I guess that was another thing I hadn't thought about is, you know, for every person that we counted that had died... There were other people that were hurt and damaged by that death Um, and learning and seeing their pain and understanding the struggles that they had been through was really illuminating for me as to, um, yeah, kind of humanizing, I guess. It sounds a bit simplistic, but understanding that these are people with friends and families and hopes and dreams. Striking.
0: Well, there's an alarming uh, bit about psychological studies uh, of how the homeless are dehumanized and how passers-by often perceive them. And this is done by, you know, the bits of the brain that light up, perceive them as objects rather than people. Now, obviously, like the, the passer-by, there's only uh, there's only so much that, that that they can do. But do you think that that problem, that sort of lack of empathy, extends to people who do have the power to help them? Is that part of the problem and why they're not more of a, of a priority?
1: I think it can do. I think the fact, you know, that these the figures on when people were dying, the fact that they weren't counted speaks to the idea that, that these people just aren't thought about and, and literally don't count. And it's quite an inconvenient truth to have that data, to know the scale of it and to know that things are getting worse. So, yeah, Absolutely. Um, The research you were talking about is uh, an academic called Dr. Lasana Harris who scanned people's brains in an MRI machine, showing them different photos of different people when they were shown an image of someone stereotypically rough sleeping. The parts of their brain that register another person didn't light up, but the, the parts that recognize an object did. And it was just this complete dehumanization, which is a factor in the violence that we see perpetrated against people who are experiencing homelessness. You know, the fact that people drop kick themselves into tents, set people sleeping bags on fire, urinate or defecate on people sleeping rough. You don't do that to somebody you perceive as human or or like yourself. So there is this lack of empathy. And to an extent, I think that can, uh, you know, extend to policy decisions There were times I heard services talk about entrenched rough sleepers who just don't want to be helped and other people who told me that's a really dangerous and tragic uh, way to look at things. You know, somebody can say no to support 99 times and only 100th time be ready and open for it. But if you get to the point where you think some people want or deserve to be homeless, you know, then then we've gone too far, then it's very hard to get back to a place where you can really address them and, and help.
0: You do talk about people, there are some people who are, who are um, homeless for years or, or decades, but you're saying that, that what then happens is that essentially people think, well, they're beyond they're beyond help. After a certain period of time, they just go, this is the life they've chosen.
1: Yeah. And in some instances, you know, being given help and given support and rejecting it or finding ways to pick holes in it or, or whatever. But yeah, like a lot of people told me, it's perseverance can be the key. It's making sure that the services are there and ready for somebody when they are ready to take them up. And it's a sense of, you know, if you've been let down by the system time and time and time again, you need to rebuild trust or else why are they going to believe that the next hand that reaches out isn't going to drop them just like the last 10 did. So, yeah, it's about rebuilding trust, perseverance, and having the spaces and the support that you know is going to be there long term to entice people into that help. And, you know, in a way that that everyone in campaign that we saw during the, the lockdown, during pandemic, has, has seems to be working well in that it's brought people in and once they're in, you can start to address those issues and build that trust in a way. And, you know, I've been hearing stories and reading stories of people who, who said, you know, I could, I could never have imagined myself sleeping inside again and here I am addressing my addiction needs or mental health needs and ready to, to take up a placement if there is one for me.
0: Well, that's, I mean, I think a really startling thing is that, is that these sort of bureaucratic catch-22s where you, you might have multiple problems and one can't be, they can't do anything for you on one until you've solved the other. But of course, you can't solve the other until you've solved the first, and that they're all sort of running running in tandem. Mm. And then when in the more sort of, I suppose, the, the opt- more optimistic uh, stretch of the book towards the end when you're looking at, at solutions to go at the Housing First scheme, uh, which has been effective in countries like Finland, mm-hmm. and reading it, I was like, this doesn't seem like sort of a wildly utopian idea. Can you explain what it is and then why it isn't being pursued here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, like you say, it's, it's, it's laughably simple when you think of it, that the way to solve homelessness is to put people in homes. Housing First is a concept that the very first thing you need to address is getting someone in somewhere sustainable, long-term, safe, with a roof over their head, a door that they can lock, where they feel secure. And then you address all of the myriad issues with wraparound services. So mental health services, drug and alcohol services, counselling, whatever it might be. But you take away, initially, you take away that stigma of being homeless. And then you have someone in a safe and secure place in a space where they can address those other issues. The way we have had um, services work in the past in the UK is that you need to prove yourself. You need to go through this programme and this programme before you're deemed reliable enough to be given a property. And that clearly hasn't worked. Like you say, Housing First has almost eradicated rough sleeping in Finland. I saw it at work in Amsterdam and it was doing amazing things in the city there. There are pilots and trials that have been set up across the UK Glasgow was one of the first. There's others in the northwest and of England and Wales. And they seem to be doing well. The issue is is that, you one, you need properties to put people in. And that seems to be an issue because of the council house sell-off of the 80s onwards here in the UK. You know, council stock, housing stock is almost non-existent in some areas. And you need to have the services in the community to be able to to help and support in all those other ways the health services the mental health services and um, addiction services etc and if those have been cut back to the bone and you now have to wait 10 weeks to get your first mental health appointment then putting someone in a house alone isn't going to to solve the problem you're just going to set them up to fail again and like you say i was hearing about these really worrying catch 22 situations where somebody with mental health needs and drug and alcohol uh, dependency would go to one service and they would say well look we, we can't address your mental health until you are off the drugs and then they would go to the drug services and they would say we can't put you on a substance misuse program until your mental health has been seen to and so literally they're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place and they've nowhere nowhere to go so until all of those things are solved you know housing first works on paper in the uk but there's elements that need to be addressed if it's going to work properly.
0: Well you end with some advice for readers who wonder what they can do. But I mean I was thinking the the most common interaction with, with rough sleepers that most people have is uh people asking for money on the street or in the tube. Um and that was something that you had just sort of candidly said that you was you were still unsure about mm-hmm. the sort of efficacy of that. Mm-hmm. Why why is it so however deeply you research this subject why is it so hard to know for sure whether you know donating money directly rather than through a charity like shelter Mm -hmm. um is helpful or not
1: i mean i guess it's literally because you can't put everybody that's experiencing homelessness everyone that's sleeping rough under the same umbrella you don't know people's circumstances you don't know their trigger points um this the state that they're in there are you know some people that that might see people that are are begging as a kind of way of life that that might have homes to go to. I think that's a tiny minority. Uh, Other people are concerned that the next money you give might pay for the drugs that could tip someone into an overdose. You don't know. Um, And then the counterpoint to that is, you know, these are all adults if you you know give them the the right to do what they want and yeah if, if you see them as adults with their own minds and their own wills then they can do what they want with their money and if they're asking for it that's mm. not your problem what they do with it so it's it's, it's a really tricky one um, that was a, a long way to say yeah <laughs> i'm still conflicted and i kind of right. take it on a case-by-case basis um and, but there are things that you can do in terms of asking, you know, your local food bank, your local soup kitchens, what help they need and donating that way to make sure that people are getting the food that, and the, the clothes that they need.
0: And finally, I just want to ask about the tip-off podcast, where you tell the story of an investigation uh, in each episode. Uh, and obviously you, you work at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Mm-hmm. And we often hear that because of general funding issues for, for journalism, which has obviously got even worse this year, that it's becoming harder and harder to fund investigative journalism because it's so labour-intensive that sometimes, in fact, you know, people can spend a while working on a story and realizing that the story isn't isn't actually there, doesn't sort of hold up. But you know, every every episode of the tip-off, there seem to be this this work being going on. Mm-hmm. How how is it being kept alive? Is it is it uh, uh, feeling the pinch as much as I might think?
1: Yeah. So the, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism is funded philanthropically um, and has been from the start and was set up in this space where investigative units at papers were being sliced and diced because, like you say, it, they're, they're the most expensive. They cost all this money. You can work for months and things don't come off. I think there was an element after the Leveson inquiry where there was this soul searching in the UK media as to you know what it is that we can be proud of. And often that is the investigative findings more than the kind of celebrity scoop. It's the big investigative stories that really stand up and, um, you know, make you a a news outlet of note, I think. So there is this work being done, but more and more it's being done on a shoestring. It's being done as a passion project by journalists, you know, working in their evenings, in their lunch breaks, trying to work it around the kind of daily um, churn of reporting. There are, you know, there are great units working out there, but we are seeing, I think, cuts again. And I'm not sure anybody has totally solved the funding model crisis in, in UK journalism. What I try and do with the tip off is to lay out just how much, much work goes into it. Because, you know, personally, as a journalist, I was getting infuriated that people can either dismiss things as fake news because they don't like the findings, or, um, you know, you see cat gifs and, and uh, clickbait stories going viral when the thing that you've worked on for a year and have sweated <laughs> blood and tears yeah, yeah, yeah. is being ignored. So I kind of wanted to give a, a platform to explain just how much work goes into getting the exact decimal point right in the 14th paragraph that you probably won't even read to, but, you know, we have laboured over it and it is fact-checked and you can re- rely on it to address that kind of one distrust in the media. And to kind of flippancy that this is easy—you just make up a story and you write it, and boom, you sell papers. Well, no, that's not what we. do.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for joining me, Maeve McLenahan. Thank you. No fixed abode is out now, published by Picador, uh, and the tip-off is available through your usual podcast channels. The Bunker Daily comes out every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with a full-length weekly episode every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. Bunker Daily is a podcast production.